The Real Clear Defense Hot Wash podcast is sponsored by Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney's F-135 engine core upgrade leverages the expertise and capabilities of Raytheon Technologies while saving taxpayers $40 billion. It's the smart decision for the F-35. Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. Today, I'm speaking with the authors of a new book called Age of Danger, Keeping America Safe in an Era of New Superpowers, New Weapons, and New Threats. We're joined today by Andrew Hone, Senior Vice President and Director of Research at the RAND Corporation. He was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy, responsible for developing and implementing U.S. defense strategy, force planning, and assessments. And Tom Shanker. Director of the Project for Media and National Security. He was the National Security Foreign Policy Editor for the New York Times, Washington Bureau, and co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Counter-Strike, the untold story of America's secret campaign against Al-Qaeda. Gentlemen, welcome to Hot Wash. Thank you, John. It's great to be here. Terrific to be here. Thank you. I've been reading the book and enjoying it. It's a big picture look at the history and systems that try to predict and deal with threats to the United States, the national institutions and the executive, legislative, private industry. It's a, it, it is literally a whole government approach, to say the least. It's a 30,000-foot look at the whole national security ecosystem, if you will. Uh, and you two pool your decades of experience in national security and access and uh, get some great interviews with people throughout the government and try to wrestle with the the big picture of essentially how do we keep America safe? And you describe these two machines of state, the, the warning machine and the action machine. Sometimes the warning has been there and the action has not or vice versa. But for our listeners, summarize what is the fundamental challenge facing the warning machine and the action machine as you lay out in the book. John, thanks. It's uh, uh, one of the things we wrestled with is Tom and I were writing this book, which was the sense of how does all this machinery work, as we like to call it. And it's, we realize that's a metaphor. You know, the warning machine, we like to think of it as the intelligence community, but uh, and it is that. But it's a much bigger apparatus. It's all the pieces that provide signals to decision makers of problems that are arising, problems that are becoming acute, problems that are becoming urgent. And certainly we hope, you know, but before the moment that the problem is that crisis. And we see this changing. Uh, you know, this was built after World War II. Uh, we can look back to the National Security Act of 1947. Uh, you know, there was an intelligence function that operated in this country, but it was really codified there. That's when we created the CIA. It's also when we created uh, uh, the 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 whole National Security Council system in which we we're bringing part participants together. That is the the warning piece represented at the time by the CIA. CIA now by the uh, director of national intelligence and it was fusing all of these pieces you know what we would hear from embassies abroad what we'd be picking up from channels through communications intelligence and so forth how we were synth synthesizing these things and what tom and i really zero in here on the book is that after 9 11 we took all those pieces and we put it on zoom we had an immediate problem 
Um, we had pieces that were looking at a lot of other things before then. The Soviet threat took us in a, in a broad global look, but we put this on Zoom. And I don't think there was ever an expectation in the year or two after 9-11 that we were going to leave this on Zoom for the next 20 years. And what we're seeing now is that we've got problems arising in a lot of different dimensions, a lot of different areas that we cover in the book. You mentioned, you know, in our title, we were, of course, looking at Russia and China, but we're looking at new threats coming in the form of of pandemic disease um, uh, and so forth, coming what we call digits, you know, in in the whole area of of new technologies and, of course, AI, which is a big area, climate uh, is is a big concern for us. And uh, we even call out a particular piece of drones, which is really a metaphor in a way for new technologies in which we have advantages. The warning machine's job is to send signals to decision makers of when those problems are arising. And the warning machine only works when there's an action machine to receive it. Their people can make decisions, but warning has to be followed by action. And what we don't see is that tight coupling in, in this larger problem space that, that, uh, that's going to allow for the warning to be received and the action to then be put in place. We built uh, a warning action machine to deal with terrorism. Um, we had to do that, but I don't think there was ever an intention to have to leave some of these other pieces uncovered. That is where warning and action aren't totally coupled. And that's really what we explore in this book. Many of the issues that you, that you grapple with pivot around time, you know, both, both time of perception of problems and the time necessary to prepare for an answer for those problems. And so, you know, at one point you, you're interviewing uh, someone at defense and, you know, he says, look, it, you know, it takes us 10 to 15 years to bring a new system online, you know, bring a new weapon system on. And that, that really, you know, that, the, that period of the forever war of the of the 20 years since 9-11 really was the lead time that we needed in order to respond to uh, uh, what was happening in China, for example, or, or Russia. Uh, you know, other issues we, you know, the action machine is honestly the best in the history of the world in terms of projecting force across the planet in a very, very short period of time. You know, you talk about uh, Task Force Smith and in in the Korean War, uh, what was the lesson of Task Force Smith for those that that don't know it? Uh, John, let me jump in here. You know, I I uh, I like to think there's not a Marine or a soldier alive who hasn't heard of Task Force Smith, and it's a story of when we sent an a, a unit into combat shortly after the Korean War broke out, and that unit wasn't ready, uh, didn't have modern weapons, hadn't been through all the training. Um, didn't have what we would expect to be to be the fully prepared set of activities and equipment and 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 armaments, and and the result was disastrous. You know, there, there were enormous losses. Uh, we know the story of of Task Force Smith that was outgunned on the battlefield. So right. it wasn't, this wasn't about the bravery of the people or the commitment of the individuals. These were committed people. Um, but we sent we the United States sent a unit to war that wasn't ready. And that's what we're really talking about here is that, that you know, the, the experience of the Korean War really imparted in the U.S. military that being ready 
for the missions in which we're, they're, they're likely to be called upon. That's job number one. And we can see that. We can see that through the military in terms of how we're ready for, for a whole host of things. But there are new problems arising, including military problems, where Tom and I are concerned that we may not be ready. And we certainly saw evidence of this in the pandemic. We had some pieces of this that worked pretty well. I mean, extraordinarily well. To have a vaccine within un- within under a year, remarkable. But we saw how other parts of the system were breaking down, where we didn't have testing available early on. We didn't have or stockpiles of PPE or or stockpiles of PPE is exactly where I'm going. That community, I think, looks over at the military to their military colleagues with some envy in a way, saying we need to become more like that. And I think Tom and I agree with that point that. If we're going to think about some of these problems like public health preparedness and how to be ready for the next for the next uh, pandemic that will almost certainly arrive, uh, then we need to be having the public health preparedness system learn that task force Smith lesson. Tom, isn't isn't this an issue of constituencies? I mean, the future does not have a vote. You know, the you know, today's voter is faced with their personal today's problem, it's very difficult to convince someone about a future problem that's 10, 15 years out. Well, John, that's actually the closing thought in our book. We, we, you know, just advocate that the future needs a seat at the table. I mean, not just the general population, but our elected leaders, uh, the, you know, civil service, the entire government is best at dealing with problems today, tomorrow, next week, between now and the election, perhaps. But we have to institutionalize people at the table with authorities to make decisions to say yes to problems that are around the corner and over the horizon. And to your earlier question, John, about the, you know, we have one of the most effective action machines in history. That's true, but we've kind of spoiled the American public by having such an efficient military. I know that your listeners are drawn heavily from the military and intelligence communities. And, you know, people in the military are proud of what they do. They're good at what they do. But all the times I was embedded with troops in Iraq and Afghanistan, they saluted smartly and did the mission. But they were asking, why are we here building schools? Why is the military, men and women carrying guns, responsible for protecting women's rights? Where is the rest of the government? that should be doing these jobs. Because remember, militaries don't win wars. Militaries only defeat other militaries. And it's the rest of the government that has to be brought in to secure the peace. And that's what Andy was saying. We need to get the rest of government to operate almost on a war footing if we're going to deal with pandemics, climate change, crop disease, all of the things approaching us in this new age of danger. You know, just in terms of the 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 national security apparatus the, the talking about the warning machine for a second that perceiving what those threats are and getting that long lead time uh to to respond to those things it it is it's so challenging because uh, i mean the, you you can't say for certain 15 years ago that this is where we were going to end up today so to convince someone 15 years ago i mean i obviously again in in hindsight i think you could look at what you know Xi's statements about in China about w- what China's intentions were around the world. You could kind of predict that this is where they would be. Uh, but you know, from a budgetary perspective, thinking back to you know, you'd be in the middle of sequestration or whatever, and trying to convince someone to to set aside 
money for a new hypersonic program or you know uh, uh if you'd told someone 15 years ago you know you know what we need to come up with a special program to defend against balloons uh, you know people would have laughed at you so i i mean how, how do you convince the the stakeholders and more importantly the american public that they've got to spend that money well especially when they're already spending a trillion plus a year well, you know, Andy and I are not advocating for increasing defense spending. So thank you for asking that. You know, 1.2 trillion a year should be ample money to do this. It just needs to be spent in a wiser way, a smarter way, a more agile way. And your point about shouldn't we have anticipated, it was part of Andy's great research in our China chapter. He found the people who were saying 20 years ago, China is a problem. And what they were told was, we have 20 years to figure it out. Well, guess what? That's today. And they didn't figure it out. You know, I think there's another uh, piece of this, John, as well. Uh, I, I and Tom's right about the 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 warning on China. This and when we think of the warning machine, we think of the whole apparatus, not just you know the the national intelligence estimate that summarizes all the pieces that that uh, your listeners are going to be thinking about, but it's the it's what the larger community is really talking about, worrying about. Certainly within the Pentagon, within the early 1990s, there was a beginning to look out into this future and beginning and asking questions. And you're right about the action machine. You know, we've got the best action machine perhaps ever seen. But we knew by the early 2000s, maybe the mid 2000s, that that action machine with regard to parts of the military, that is the American way of war. We knew that wasn't going to work very well if you had to put that um, to the test in, say, the Western Pacific, um, that there were real changes that were going to need to come. Um, and that was being talked about in the early 90s, the mid-90s, certainly by the early 2000s. Uh, we tell a story of you know war games that were being run um, you know, in the mid 2000s, where it's looking like change really needs to come. There's still a window out there, but change. The, the war, war games simulating with China in the Strait. War yeah. games yeah, yeah. simulating with China. Yeah. Thanks for the clarification. Uh, and, you know, the lesson, the lessons that are piling up, the great comment that we have from, uh, from uh, one, of, one of the top generals we spoke to is what we were learning, all we were learning is that we were losing faster. So in a way, you're right about the action machine and how it performs, but the action machine also needs to be not only be able to perform today, but being ready for that future. That's the that's the concern that we're really trying to highlight here. The right. slowness of the of the larger system to be able to adapt right. over time. I want to bring Tom back to it to a story as well. We talk about you can't anticipate any everything. But you can listen when people are telling you what they're about to do. Tom, you should tell the listeners here about Putin and what transpired in Munich. Well, we describe Putin as the danger hiding in plain sight. You know, I was in Munich for the Munich Security Conference in 2007, where Putin gave this speech that absolutely shocked everybody there. He accused the U.S. of being a hyperpower. He said the war in Iraq was illegal. And he said he was going to reestablish Russia's control over its near uh, abroad. And people said, yeah, 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 that's Putin. He's upper volta with rockets. We don't need to worry about it. But he said very clearly what he was going to do. A year later, he invaded Georgia. In 2014, 
he invaded Ukraine. And we talked to the four-star commander of NATO who was in command in 2014 when Putin's forces moved into Ukraine. He had zero tactical warning, John. None whatsoever. And he told us that he went off like a well-hit nine iron in a tile bathroom. He was Wait, so was this, this this was Crimea or the most recent? Okay. 2014. Yeah. Oh, 2014. 2014. 2014. We'll get, we'll get to okay. the latter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 2014. Yeah. And, he, and he said, how is this possible? And he flew to Washington and met with the heads of the intelligence community who told him that on the day before the Berlin Wall fell, height of the Cold War, there were about... 15,000 analysts all across the warning machine watching the Soviet Union. On the day before the invasion of Ukraine in 2014, that 15,000 had dropped to two or 3,000. Similarly, the day before the Berlin Wall fell, 50% of the intelligence budget was focused on the Soviet Union. The day before the invasion of Ukraine in 2014, that had dropped to 15%. So the warning machine was watching nuclear issues very carefully, very important, existential, but the U.S. blinded itself to the operational and tactical activities of the Russian military. But most of all, they didn't listen to what Putin said he was going to do for years until he finally did it. Tom, I just want to pause there for just one second and let our listeners know that the Real Clear Defense Hot Wash podcast is sponsored by Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney's F-135 engine core upgrade leverages the expertise and capabilities of Raytheon Technologies while saving taxpayers $40 billion. It's the smart decision for the F-35. So let's continue. You know, I'm imagining state or CIA or, or, you know, any of the number of agencies that have analysis units and they've got a They've got a Russia desk, they've got a, you know, a Near East desk, they've got, you know, a China desk, you know, and each one of those bureaucratically are little fiefdoms. They're all competing for resources and time and attention with the director. They're, they're competing for space in the, in, in the NIE or, or in the state of the union, you know, and because attention is power and attention affects their budget and, you know, it is in each of those analysts subdomains interests to say my domain is going to be the most the biggest threat in 10 to 15 years how do you without increasing the budget of you know uh the, the over a trillion dollars how do you get to a place that is a more efficient way of helping decision makers direct finite assets to prepare for threats that are are green shoots now instead of you know raging fires on their doorstep john this is this of course is the the dilemma that every leadership team uh faces and of course every administration has its crises that it has to deal with we can look back on how well those are handled or how well they aren't Uh, we do know that from the standpoint of identification of interests that is that you know where are the country's interests and and that begins with you know basic security of the american people um that that extends to thinking about issues of prosperity and so forth for uh in terms of an economic climate and so forth those interests um take you to looking at certain kinds of problems that have to be you know watched and evaluated um 
the, uh, you know, this is the job of a leadership team to make sure, as Tom was saying earlier, and you mentioned in the earlier question, that that question of the future having a seat at the table. But it's also one in which we have to have the institutions that are showing themselves to be responsive enough. We, we use a line that, you know, that uh, uh, there's, you know, it's an old saying that, you know, the generals and admirals are always preparing for the last war. I don't know that that's true. We know a lot of the generals and admirals. These are bright, capable people. We know them. But the institutions don't move nearly as quickly. And that's a real focus that we have in this book, that it's not, it, it is about the talented people that are serving, but it's also about the institutions in which they're working. We need to make, help them become, these institutions have to be more nimble. There are ways in which we can see this. You you asked, you I, you alerted earlier when we talked about the Russia's latest invasion of Ukraine. I would say that's that's a success story of warning and action coming together. The warning in the sense uh, um, signals were there, and we use that warning to great effect. Uh, uh, even the imagery, I can't think of a better example since perhaps the time uh, when Adelaide Stevenson goes to the UN at the time right. of the missile crisis, in which we were using imagery to to say a mess to give a message to the world. This is about to happen, and it was. I mean, it was a it was a huge reveal of capabilities. I mean, hmm. I, I mean, I I, I I was just gobsmacked that they would gobsmacked release what they the did. Word. I mean, right. uh, both the you know what it revealed in terms of you know signals intelligence and you know uh, image intelligence as as well as human intelligence that that you know that the U.S. intelligence apparatus knew better certainly than Ukraine and and even than many frontline uh, officers in, in the Russian military, what was right. about to happen. Right. But and how job- that got turned into action, I think, is also, I'm right. going right. to let Tom say a little bit more there. I think, really interesting story. But in a way, the machine was, decide, was designed to do that. Doesn't mean that the, if the machine can be designed, you know, doesn't mean it's going to be used, but it was designed to do that. And and that's that's a real distinction. We've got other problems where the machine right. isn't designed to do that. But Tom, right. you have right. more to say on this, right? You know, involving the intelligence before the Ukrainian invasion, the most recent one. You know, we, we write about the warning machine, the action machine. We talk about the U.S. government and the national security machine. It's something that Andy wrote in an early draft, which has just really stuck with me. You know, it's when we talk about the machine, we're talking about people. And it's so important that the right people have the right jobs. And I think it's no accident that the declassification of intelligence before Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine was handled so brilliantly. Not It's not only because of him, but has to be partly because the CIA director is a former ambassador to Moscow. One of the best Russian speakers in the government has met Vladimir Putin on many occasions and he's not a career intelligence officer. He's a longtime State Department official. And Director Burns is the kind of person who consumed intelligence for decades. And now at the CIA, I think he had a real diplomatic sense, a public diplomacy sense of how to use that intelligence in ways that wouldn't sacrifice sources and methods, but lobbied world opinion. I think, you know, if I was a PhD student, that would be my doctoral thesis. So uh, let's stick with Ukraine for a while, because I think that it it has so much to teach us about the future and the past, uh, you know, and thinking about the battle of the cost curve, 
and that in the initial stages of the uh, of the war, the Ukrainians with foreign support, with U.S. support, especially the competition of a of a javelin, you know, which costs you know hundreds of thousands of dollars, but still is is cheap by comparison to a T seventy two tank that it takes down, uh, was massive, and that 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 really really leveled the playing field. Now, now we're in the the intermediate or or later stages of the game. Ukraine's received some more expensive weapon systems from us, like the Patriot system, which clocks in at you know about a billion dollars for you know the the launcher and the missiles all together. And granted, Russia's you know burning rubles, sending its its uh, its missiles over, but uh, you've got a very imbalanced weapon system there. It, Traditionally, the U.S. has chosen the most expensive option <laughs> whenever possible in terms of solutions. You talk about drones and the, and the drone warfare. How how can the U.S. flip its traditional reliance on? We talked a little bit earlier about the F thirty five. You know, uh, an immensely expensive weapon system that you know really that. That t- that sticker price affects how uh, commanders think about fielding those pieces of hardware and and human beings especially. But uh, but those pieces of hardware they they may not put them in harm's way because they're just too expensive to lose, and there's too few of them. So I, you know how do we get an institution? The the DoD loves big ticket items. How do you flip that that institutional culture? of the cost curve and and put it on the the drones versus expensive missiles side of the cost curve instead of the patriot versus cheap missiles side of the cost curve. Well, John, I think there's no easy answer to this and uh you know as somebody who's been a long-time insider I was 15 years in the Pentagon and now been at Rand for years. This is, you know, this is an enormous challenge. But there are really interesting people working on this and you know one of the stories we tell when we go through a you know our 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 focus on china is this pairing of a, of a physicist who's looking at new sensor technology and and working closely with the air force and you know he wants to he's thinking about how do you make this grid of using inexpensive sensors on relatively and even very inexpensive drones and not just putting up a few, not looking for exquisite pieces, but relying on the ability of of these sensors to be uh, connected and forming this grid in which you could put out a couple thousand of these. He he likes to describe them as flying iPhones. It's a you know really interesting idea. But not only would it provide you that that uh, uh, that very specific sense of tactical intelligence that you need and if you were in facing the battle space but it does uh uh inverse this cost curve i mean these very inexpensive sensors it would still require expensive missiles to start bringing these down and you could re- you could replace them or replicate them relatively quickly this is still this is still sort of drawing board ideas this isn't yet to be fielded but we we're really attracted to the idea that People are thinking creatively to try to uh, 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 think differently about this idea of cost and competition and what it really means. Because 
for most of our careers, we've witnessed what you're talking about. We have these extraordinary answers, but extraordinarily expensive answers. And when you start committing these or thinking about committing these on a modern battlefield, um, you could find yourselves on the wrong side of this of this cost equation. We'd like to see more experiments with the idea of taking a flying iPhone and using that as, as part of your sensor grid so that you're forcing others then to have to use their expensive hardware to try to disrupt that. Yeah, I mean, Andy's description of how we could use the American asymmetrical advantage in drones against China is so valid. But even looking at Ukraine, yes, it's expensive hardware, but there was an axiom about our time in Iraq and Afghanistan that every soldier was a censor. And what we've seen in Ukraine is every citizen is a censor. And one of the greatest asymmetric advantages Ukraine has had over the Russians is that every Ukrainian can send iPhone pictures to a military headquarters as tanks are passing through their, their cities. And let's not forget that the first public report of the Russian invasion, you know, the CIA and NSA were watching it, National Geospatial, but the first public report came from a uh, national security professor in Monterey, California, whose students had been watching Google Maps for all the border crossings between Ukraine and Russia. And at two in the morning in Ukraine, suddenly there were massive traffic jams, and he just intuited the armors moving across the border. So that has revolutionized the way even superpowers can no longer go to war secretly. Tom, when you speak to people in the the larger military-industrial complex, do you do you get the sense that they do they sense that they are trapped within certain forces that that lead to these extremely long turnaround times and development that you know that you know everyone wants the government to balance its budget you know but it, you know it, it, every the system is so massive and the force the systemic forces towards bigger budgets towards you know bigger ticket items uh, it are is so powerful. There's a certain there's an inertia about that. Um, I mean, what is your sense about how people are either aware of that or their ability to to actually change that? Right. So I grew up in the West, so I'm familiar with Death Valley. It wasn't until I came to Washington that I learned of the Valley of Death, which is this giant gap between decision funding research, development, testing, evaluation, and no lesser illuminary than the four-star outgoing vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff pointed to the valley of death, these long development times, John, that you're describing as one of the greatest threats to national security. I would add to it as a journalist, I think that the political polarization in our country today is an equal threat. Let's talk a little bit about the the digit side. I mean, there's so much to kind of dive into in this book. I mean, we didn't really, we barely touched on uh, how climate change is going to change things, or you know, the, the, the whole. There's a whole chapter on uh, the potential for for germs or the natural world to really provide us with a a, a, a curveball that we're we're unprepared for. But I want to talk about the digits side of things a little bit and. Uh, you know, I think there's both the the cyber war- warfare part of it. There's the AI part of it, but also there's just the you know protecting against being hacked. And we have both failed you know tremendously at, at defending against uh, China. I'm thinking of the OPM hack. 
Um, but even more than that, uh, you know, the self injuries, the cell phones that we've exhibited, especially with this this Discord leak, are are really just continuously shocking. I, you know, I'm thinking about the Discord leak. Didn't we learn this lesson with Chelsea Manning? I mean, I I, I still am kind of a little baffled by how you know uh, you know a junior service member is is literally printing out you know flag level briefings you know without someone paying attention. Isn't there a danger that we you know post nine eleven? My at least my perception from the outside is that post nine eleven the the diagnosis was we've stovepiped too much. So we want everybody to access everything anywhere at any time. And we flattened access, you know, so even if you've got a uh, an SCI secure compartmentalized, you know, access to uh to intelligence, it, it just seems like the amount of access that even a, a low-level person uh you know, might have access to just demands that we're going to, you know, leak this information ourselves. It's It wasn't, you know, as far as we know, it wasn't a foreign power. We did this to ourselves. You know, how do you see how the system has transformed itself and how we have laid ourselves vulnerable to that kind of, of intelligence leakage? I think it's a, you know, it's a big, big concern. The current case I think we're, we're, it'll be time before we know enough about to draw a real conclusion. But what we're seeing about it is so, so disturbing that, um, you know, apparently there may have been evidence that people were worried about this behavior before it really manifested itself. That, that kind of thing, I think we have to really, really focus upon. You know, the, the sense of the idea that we're going to have lower some of these stovepipes we're going to have communications uh across it i think we have to continue in that regard have to continue um you know we're going to have to think about how we can build some safeguards into some of this kind of activity i i'm not an expert in this area but what i hear about things like zero trust access where things live in a cloud and you can't be taken out of a cloud um that might begin to offer some of the some of the remedy that uh that we're going to need you know we'll have to see how that and when i say live in the cloud they live in a secure cloud and you you can access that information but you're not going to have printed forms sitting on a desk that somebody can take a cell phone out and then take photos or however that was however that was done right there are ways that you can build some better structural safeguards the other thing that we point to in the book, though, is, you know, uh, you know, Tom and some of his uh, reporting, and I'm going to let him tell this story, but this worry about the idea of a cyber Pearl Harbor and, you know, a lot of protections on the big lights out scenario. But maybe that wasn't the thing we really should have been worried about, or maybe there was a bigger problem or as big a problem we should have been worrying about all along. And Tom, I'll let you pick up with that. Yeah, thanks, Andy. John, you're a military historian, so you understand how sort of the power of analogy can drive policy to the wrong place. Like during Vietnam, we had to be in Vietnam because of the domino theory. If Vietnam falls, then all these other countries will fall. And similarly, the fear of a cyber Pearl Harbor so drove the national security discussion that a hacker could turn off the lights on the East Coast, wreck the financial system, turn off the water supply. That hasn't happened yet. That doesn't mean it couldn't. But the real cyber Pearl Harbor might have happened quietly and slowly 
and we write about China's theft of intellectual property and military secrets, piece by piece, file by file, possibly the largest theft in world history, billions of dollars in value, intellectual value. And if you look at China's newest generation stealth fighter, hmm, it looks a lot like ours. I, there's so much to talk about with the book. I hope that our listeners check it out. Uh, just final thoughts, uh, Tom, you know, what do you want people to take away? It's, I think it's very easy to uh, read the list of threats and be easily overwhelmed, whether you're a policymaker or, or uh, uh, just your average citizen. Um, what what was your takeaway from this, from your reporting? And uh, did it make you confident that the systems, the machines have the capacity to change? I think my takeaway apropos of this conversation, John, and again, thank you so much for having us, is that we as a nation have to expand the definition of national security. It can't just be problems resolved with bullets and bombs. We have to think about climate security, data security, food security. And it really was a learning process for me because as a military affairs reporter, I spent 20 years of my life writing mostly about counterterrorism. I was part of this machine that furthered this narrative. And it's time for all of us to embrace this wider definition of what it means for us to be safe. And Andy, what do you hope that people will take away from the book? Uh, I'm going to come back to where we started, John. You know, I, I you picked up on this notion of Task Force Smith. I think when we open this, you know, aperture and we look at the kind of problems we need to be very clear that we aren't going to, we aren't going to solve them by playing pickup games that this doesn't take a whole remaking of the government but it does you know require planning it requires training it requires investment um we don't have to move you know hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars to do this but we've got to take some of the the resources that are available and we need to think about in the same way that the that the military thinks about, you know, ready to fight tonight. When we're going to look at these other problems, we want to be ready to solve them or address them, maybe not solve them, but ready to address them tonight. Uh, you know, we use a line that we picked up from uh, from General Stan McChrystal, who had a, had a terrific discussion with us. And, you know, in some ways he was perfecting the killing machine. You know, he, he took that and put that to work and it was very effective as a counterterrorism tool. We need to be building more of the life-saving machines along similar lines. That's one of that's a big takeaway for me. The book is Age of Danger: Keeping America Safe in an Era of New Superpowers, New Weapons, and New Threats. Uh, Andrew Hohen and Tom Shanker, thanks so much for joining us on Hot Wash. Thanks for having us on, John. Thank you so much. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. It really helps others discover the program. And let us know what you think about the podcast. Is there a topic or guest you would like us to talk to? You can follow us on Twitter at HotWashRCD or send us an email with your comments to editors at RealClearDefense.com. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive the Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen. 